previously on Beta. I'm for a day of playing golf and being faithful to my girlfriend. Wouldn't you rather take a spin on the newest Mario Kart instead? Dude, my dad is always watching. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, Gabrielle Zevin joins us to talk about her best-selling, critically acclaimed novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's the immersive story of two friends who join forces to create groundbreaking video games. Programming is really just a series of languages, and these languages are trying to communicate in, their, in a video game designer's case some kind of experience. And really, I'm doing the exact same thing as a novelist. Also, one of the great writers of nonfiction Americana, Jeff Gwynn joins us to share the tragic saga and legacy of the standoff in Waco. Waco, Mount Carmel, has really been the launch pad for a lot of violence and anti-government or anti-religion acts since. But first... The golf world is just teeming with storylines right now. The game has never been more controversial than it is this year. I mean, they're pulling you in so many different directions. What's noise and what's not noise? You can't almost believe what's happening in the game. I did not envision any of this happening. It's just a totally different situation now than anything can happen. You have picked a hell of a year to start following the PGA Tour. That's a clip from the Netflix docuseries, Full Swing. This behind-the-scenes series takes you inside the high-pressure, high-stakes lives of professional golfers. You could find yourself winning a million dollars if you play well, or you could end up owing money if you have a bad day on the course. And sometimes the difference comes down to one shot. But you don't have to be a golfer to enjoy the series. Similar to Netflix's F1 docuseries Drive to Survive, Full Swing is packed with enough drama, heart, and cringe that will appeal to any reality TV fan. Executive producer Chad Mum picked a hell of a year to give us an intimate look at the world of golf. The arrival of the controversial Live Golf Tour means that the so-called gentleman's game is not so gentle anymore. Chad joins me now to share how he made Full Swing happen. Every year I would meet up with the PGA Tour team uh, at, in Las Vegas for the CES conference. And, I, you know, I like to play golf. They like to play golf. We would go out and talk about, you know, a bunch of ideas and how we could work together. But this was always the top of my list was, you know, we should do a doc series immersive inside the PGA Tour. And every year they would say, yeah, it sounds awesome, but we're not quite ready yet. And then 2019, I find myself in Las Vegas. We play golf again. And I brought it back up on the first hole. And by the 18th hole, we had sorted out what would eventually become full swing. And I think what had changed was, you know, first off, the PGA Tour got new leadership. So Jay Monahan became commissioner. And I think, you know, they were open to exploring new ways of reaching new audiences. And I guess, you know, from that moment on, fast forward three months later, I'm at the Players' Championship, the flagship PGA Tour event, meeting with the leadership team of the PGA Tour, talking about how we would bring this to life. And then a month later, I'm at Augusta National, standing outside the ropes with an index card full of players' agents with their names and faces, and flagging people down and telling about this project that we were trying to get started. Yeah. You had one principle in your pitch to the PGA. 
What was it? We wanted it to be authentic. And we had said, it has to be real. It has to be warts and all. I think it's generally unfair to ask too much of our athletes when it comes to thinking about what goes on outside the lines. But in this case, you can't say that you don't know what you're doing. You made this decision to go help Saudi Arabia. And here these atrocities are that you're helping hide. The journey you've been told about Saudi Arabia is on. How is that journey helping the women oppressed in Saudi Arabia, the migrant groups, their rights violated, the LGBTQ individuals who were criminalized, the families of the 81 men who were executed in March, and those being bombed in Yemen? It's a really hard question to answer. You know, we're just, we're just here to focus on the Gulf. One of the biggest stories was the launch of the competing and controversial tour Live Golf. You featured several players who wrestled with the decision to play in the series. What, what was that like? You know, I think that we were never expecting that the Live Tour to emerge in the middle of our filming. Uh, I think we had sort of heard some chatter about it, but it was a little bit uncertain about what, uh, you know, whether and when it was going to happen. And then I remember vividly being in Los Angeles at the Genesis, uh, which is a tournament held at Riviera. And it was like the whole world got flipped upside down in one minute. And all of a sudden you have this camaraderie that exists on the PGA Tour, this kind of traveling circus. It's like a lot of players compl- you know, kind of compare it to high school. And here we are like now all of a sudden there's this division and kind of it's unprecedented in sports as far as I can tell where you have something like this happen like during the season. It wasn't in the off season. It wasn't when players were all at home. They were all together in the locker room, in the same locker room, and looking at each other now with like a, a new kind of decision to make. And it was a, for us to, to have the access that we did to players like Ian Poulter, uh, who, you know, principally is, is the vehicle through which we tell that story. You know, he, he had granted us a ton of access. And so we were watching in sort of real time as he wrestled with that decision. And I think you'll see in the show it was a wrestle. I mean, there wasn't, yeah, I don't think he had his mind made up until, you know, quite, quite late into the game. In the 25 years I've played on tour, I've played European tour and I've played the PGA tour. I've played on the Japanese tour. I've played on the Korean tour. As an independent contractor, I'm doing nothing different to what I've always done. The hope in this is that we can all coexist. So what we wanted to do was really let the players tell their side of the story, whether they stay or go. And and we were able to have a lot of access to be able to see those, you know, kind of decisions come to fruition. And, you know, like I said, good or bad, our, our, our point of view was not to take a side. It was to let the players, you know, bring us into their world. And if it was important to them, it was going to be important to us. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it work so well. As you mentioned, you had access to players and some of these players had won majors while you were filming. Some of them won majors while you were filming, and then you had access to players who were missing cuts and struggling with confidence. What scenario makes for more riveting storytelling? I think that's what's so beautiful about golf is that it's, you know, I, the, the both can be true, that both can be compelling. And, and there's a, you know, golf is this incredibly individualistic sport that, you know, takes incredible skill to play, to play well, um, physical skill, but also mental skill. And so much of this game takes place in that sort of five inch space between your ears, or the player's ears. And the difference between a player in the top 10 in the world and a top, you know, a hundred ranked player is like one shot per round. So wow. you, you realize that the margin for error out here is so razor thin. 
and and our mission for the show is to try and understand sort of what is the difference, you know, what what gives those players that extra edge. So for us, it was always important to have players who weren't necessarily just winning majors. We wanted to have some examples of of just how much of a grind it is out there on the PGA Tour. You know, when we were filming last year, if you didn't make the cut after Thursday and Friday, you, you didn't make any money. And you've now spent, you know, you've been on the road for a week, you've had hotel rooms, you're paying for your caddy, you've got your phys- physical trainer, you've got, you know, it's expensive to play and travel and pro golf. And if you're not making cuts, you're not making money, you're, you're walking away in the red every week. And so we wanted to get a sense of what that feeling was like. And, and you know, we really got to see that through Joel Damon, through some of mm-hmm. our rookie stories. Yeah, you followed a lot of emotional arcs during this series. Is there one golfer story that stands out to you? I think Tony Finau really stands out to me because I also am a dad. And, you know, I've traveled a lot for this show and been on the road a lot. And and that pull back towards home of being there for your young children, sort of make sure you see them in their moments, see them growing up when you're living a life on the road. Um, it's It's difficult. It's so special just to have my family here with me. And there's been a lot of people that have got me to this point. And... I'd be selfish not to to thank so many people, but my parents and my wife are, are people that have supported me from day one. You know, this one's this one's for them. Tony Finau, you have earned this victory. Go celebrate with your family. Congratulations. Thanks, Tony's story is one that I found to be so inspiring because of his background and everything that he's gone through. And to be both a, a great father, and as you ask, you know, players out here on the tour, like what the nicest guy on the tour. And also a competitor that can, you know, win twice in a row. Uh, to, it's just, it's super inspiring. And I, you know, I want to be like Tony Fino. Mm, yeah. One of the major developments that happened during your filming was Rory McIlroy becoming the ambassador of the PGA Tour. How did you manage to get Rory on board? We had talked to Rory's team for the last, you know, year when we first started filming. And his team, they were great to work with but they had sort of graciously declined to be a part of season one. And, uh, you know, I think their rationale was he's going to focus on golf, which I completely understand. He's one of the game's preeminent faces and, you know, generationally talented Hall of Fame player. But we kept noticing as we were filming, you know, Roy was still there at our events and we had access to his friends and we were filming around in locker room, same locker rooms that he was in. And we just kept noticing him popping up in the background of shots and sometimes in the foreground, you know, coming and joining our, cast members as we were filming with them and, and really not shying away from the camera. So we thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. And uh, late in the season, I I, I just kind of steeled myself to go and make the ask directly. So I went and met with him on a Monday morning of a tournament. And if makes it sound like we had an arranged meeting. I really just showed up at the clubhouse first and waited around for him to get there. And, and he was sitting alone in a room and having breakfast. And I went and sat down with him and told him I thought, that the world needed to hear his voice. I mean, sometimes I think what a what a time to to get involved in all this stuff with everything that's happen- happening in the professional game. It's been contentious at times, and I've maybe leaned into that part of it a little too much uh, and made it a little too personal in my mind. But I feel like what some people have done has affected the rest of the profession. So uh, I'm just trying to defend what I think is right. And to Rory's credit, he he said yes in that. 10-minute meeting, and an hour later, he had a mic on and, you know, was was all in. He doesn't do things halfway. 
Mm, yeah. You caught some serious candid behind the scenes commentary from Rory. Do you think that was played up for your cameras or was that genuine? I think it was genuine. I mean, Rory, Rory certainly has given us no indication that he is not anything but his truest self in every interaction that we have with him. And he is polished and as accomplished as a player he is, I think he's even more impressive as a person and as a mm. thoughtful leader, um, and a very just naturally charismatic leader. And I think, of course, he's genuine. Based on your Josh Allen post, you're a Josh Allen fan. Oh, and he's a PGA Tour fan. Yeah, but he's a Phil Mickelson fan, so I don't know if that's... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Sounds like this guy losing credibility. <laughs> he means everything he says, and I think he... It, it was fun to sort of see inside his world a bit and just to see the relationships he has with these other great players. And, and you know, that that to me, that room, you know, that, that was at the very end of the year, tour championship. It's like, this is that the last gasp of that camaraderie, you know, that they'd have, those, those players have been playing together for years. And I think it gives you a sense of just how real and unfiltered the access that we had was. Mm. You used an innovative technique to generate more authentic reactions from players. What did you do? We decided to start recording uh, our first interviews with each player before we shot anything on video or on film. We, we sat them down and did an audio-only interview. And they spend so much time under a microscope. You know, the media is just is, is all around them at all times. They, there's cameras after each round. There's cameras at press conferences. So we wanted them to come in and sit down and just tell us about who they were in their own words. So we started with no no cameras, no lighting. We actually asked them to come in street clothes, you know, not in your hmm. golf outfits, and sit down with us and, and, you know, just have a conversation. And it was amazing to see the difference in their posture, just sitting down at a table and having a conversation versus, you know, the lights in your face and the big camera lens is there. And you just, you tend to open up, be a little more free. And, and when we first started those interviews, you know, I remember sitting back there with Paul and after the first one was over, we looked at each other and we said, you know, we, we've got a real show here because mm. the player who had come in, you know, was very well known and had a very, you know, I think very established brand, you know, for good or bad. And the person that we saw in front of us in the chair was was the opposite, was completely different, totally open, completely vulnerable and, and really taking us into their struggle. And it was just, it was fascinating from the first minute. Yeah, and I, I imagine you don't want to tell us who that player was. No, I will. It was it was Brooks Kepka. Oh, okay, yeah. Brooks Kepka came in, and I give him a lot of credit. He came in by himself, you know, no agents, no entourage, and sat down and and you know for an hour and a half just opened up. And and as a golf fan, my whole life, you know, as a person who has watched a ton of PGA Tour golf, has watched a lot of Brooks Kepka. I was shocked by the person sitting in front of me. I've had these question marks for like the last year and a half. Is it going to be the same golfer? Am I ever going to be the same? And I still don't know where I'm at. He was one of the most fascinating and interesting people that we had the pleasure to film with. And I think his story will surprise many people who watch mm. the show. Yeah. One person who looms large over the whole series but is not featured is Tiger Woods. Did you approach Tiger to be part of the series? I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't. Um, right. But, you know, Tiger. Tiger's schedule was uncertain for the year. You know, we weren't sure when he was going to play, when he was coming back. So, you know, we really weren't counting on it, just given his injury and, and you know, the sort of uncertainty of him returning. And he uh, and, and one of the things that was consistent about this show was every single player who came in and sat down with us, uh, they said the reason why they're playing pro golf is because of Tiger Woods. And, mm. I mean, to, to, a, to a man, everybody said that. 
And so it became clear that, you know, his, his impact, not just on the wider world of sports and golf, but just on these players, you know, they owe so much to him. And they were very open about saying that. So he definitely factors in as a, uh, as a figure that has a, had a huge impact on many of these players. And in some of their stories, you know, really takes a, a large role. But, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to save Tiger for, for later. Yes, of course. Are you hoping that this series can do for golf what Drive to Survive did for F1 racing in, in terms of transcendence? I think any expectation that we could do even an ounce of what Drive to Survive has done for Formula One would be would be amazing. I mean that that would be the dream. I think, you know, for us, we feel like uh, we've made an amazing show. We've we've captured the spirit of pro golf. We had a bunch of amazing characters that are interesting, not just to golf fans, but I think to general audiences. Uh, and I think we've made something that hopefully people will really enjoy. And if it if it has even a, an ounce of the impact that Drive to Survive has had, then you know we'll have been widely successful. Very well said. Chad Mum, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Full Swing. Thank you so much. Chad Mum is the executive producer of the Netflix docuseries Full Swing. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. But I think this story is about really childhood friends, that kind of like hothouse atmosphere of the intimacy you have and that you can only have when you're age 13 and have like hundreds of hours to spend together. Coming up, Gabrielle Zevin joins us to talk about her intoxicating novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. A truly magnificent thing about the way the brain was coded, Sam thought, was that it could say excuse me while meaning screw you. Unless they were unreliable or clearly established as lunatics or scoundrels, characters in novels, movies, and games were meant to be taken at face value. The totality of what they did or what they said. But people the ordinary, the decent, and basically honest, couldn't get through the day without that one indispensable bit of programming that allowed you to say one thing and mean, feel, even do another. That's Gabrielle Zevin reading an excerpt from her best-selling, critically acclaimed novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. The best-selling author, John Green, says Gabrielle's novel is one of the best books he's ever read. And I have to agree with him. Gabrielle has written a fascinating novel about two friends who decide to collaborate on designing video games. These games are so imaginative and innovative that you'd wish you could play them in real life. I sure wish I could, and maybe someday they will become real games. Fingers crossed. But Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is not just about video games. Gabrielle also explores identity, disability, failure, and our need to connect with our fellow humans. She joined us from her home in Los Angeles to talk about her book. It never occurred to me to write about video games before. Gaming, for me, had been some of my seminal storytelling experiences, and they had really kind of determined even parts of the ways I wrote novels, and yet I had never addressed it. And I think this is not actually 
an experience unique to me because, you know, I was born in 1977, which puts me squarely in the Oregon Trail generation, Mm -hmm. the generation that is either like a young Jet Xer or an old millennial and kind of determined by the fact that you may have played Oregon Trail in a computer lab in a school somewhere. And so like the first generation of people to have played video games as children are now turning into their 40s and even their 50s. And I thought this was worth thinking about. How would your life have been changed if you had consumed video games for your whole life? How does that change your experience of even, you know, mortality, relationships, and everything else? Mm-hmm. And you you really thought it through very well, and that's that's what makes your novel so powerful. One of the most fascinating things about your novel is that although it is mainly about video games, you're able to include a lot of other interesting themes. How did you manage that? A great subject for a book is like a great big bowl, and it attracts many other subjects to it, and it fits many things inside of it. And I knew when I started conceiving of the novel that video games were a great subject because the whole world was contained within discussing video games. So I I believe that you can write about anything and find a shadow history of, say, what it is to be a person or, you know, an artist in a certain period of year. So I could tell you about, like, the history of bread making or the history of furniture making or the history of anything, and you would learn something about what it was like to be a person by experiencing that time through the lens of whatever thing you're talking about. And so I think that's really what drew me to video games as subject. Mm. Did you know that before you started writing Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow that there were all these other subjects that kind of fit into this amazing bowl of video games? Or did you kind of discover that as you were writing the book? You know, I think the hard thing as a novelist is not having ideas. It's choosing which ones are worth following. But with this book, I didn't know. I never know. You know, and I think that's part of the joy of writing a novel. You take this leap into this abyss when you kind of really give yourself over to a new creative thing. The deeper I got with it, the more I started to see that I could see almost everything about, again, the last 30 years of life within this subject. You know, my life overlaps with the length of this book. You know, it was really a way for me to talk about time and my experience on the planet. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about the two main characters, Sam Mazur and Sadie Green. Can you tell us a bit about them? I can. Sam Mazur, he is a kid who has had a horrible accident when he was very young, and the fallout from that accident, I think, determines a lot about why he plays video games and a lot about his sort of even the way he relates to people. A thing that I share with Sam is that we're both half Jewish and half Korean, and it's the first time I'd ever given somebody my ethnic identity. And so a lot of Sam's experiences around race, though not all of his thoughts about it, but some of his experiences are mine. This feeling of, you know, I was raised in a town that was like 66% Jewish, and so there were ways in which I always felt myself to be more that way and didn't understand the ways in which I was other than that. And then when I sort of all of a sudden traveled to Asia in my 20s, I became aware that I might have been an entirely different person if I had been, you know, born somewhere else. And I might have like felt more Asian in a sense, you know. And so these are some things that Sam experiences. Sadie Green, she is a video game designer like Sam. And I think a core thing that happens to her is that her sister has cancer and manages to survive when she's a kid, but I think it always makes her think about mortality a lot, and that's one of the reasons she is drawn to video games. A a lot of Sadie's experiences 
as a person in a male-dominated profession, I think probably come from some of my own experiences as a novelist for the last 17 years. <laughs> and, and, and so that's a lot of this, the Sadie Green character. Yeah. How does Sam's disability affect his friendship with Sadie? I mean, I think it affects everything for Sam. I think he, because of, you know, the injury he sustained when he was a kid, he doesn't like being in his body. And so something that video games can do for him is allow him to not be in his body. But I think in a sense, you know, it certainly cuts off for him the idea of a physical relationship with Sadie. Um, It's just not something that he can do, you know, at least for most of the book. It's not something he can even contemplate. It makes him a person who is definitely more in his head than in his body. Mm, Yeah. The first video game that Sam and Sadie create together is called Ichigo, A Child of the Sea. Can you describe it for us? Ichigo is about a child who is caught in a tsunami (laughs) and he ends up basically like far away from home, but he doesn't have language really. And he doesn't know even his first name and he can't really count to numbers past 10. And and all he has is a football jersey on in the back that says 1-5, which is Ichi and Go, or Jugo, which is uh, 15 in Japanese. And so the story is how a kid manages to like get home lacking language, really, is what the story of Ichigo is. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing is that uh, Sadie and Sam originally envisioned the character as non-gender, neither a he nor a she, correct? Yes. I think Ichigo is a they because they don't want the child to be either a girl or a boy. Because at that age, and in visually even, if you think about what, say, graphics at that time look like, you really couldn't see. And if anything, it's a compromise for them because it is both of their work together. And I think it's one of the ways in which Sam kind of subtly overtakes Sadie when they make the Ichigo character ultimately becomes a boy in terms of it being easier to market, which ends Mm -hmm. up being true, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. One of the most fascinating things about Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is the incredible amount of work that goes into creating a video game. How did you acquire all of this information? Well, the best thing that happened for me was that I had a book before this one that sold a lot of copies, which meant I had a lot more time to just do hard research (laughs) into the topic. So there's five years between my last book and this book. And a lot of that time was spent really just learning everything I could about video game design. And as I mentioned to you before, there were ways in which I just, the the farther I got, and even knowing some video game designers now a little bit, I realized that essentially we do a very similar job, minus how much burdensome tech they have. We're storytellers. <laughs> and even to push it farther than that, maybe to a ridiculous extent, you know, programming is really just a series of languages. And these languages are trying to communicate in their in a video game designer's case, some kind of experience. And really, I'm doing the exact same thing as a novelist. And so at a certain point, I realized that the technical things were not as interesting as the human things and just the ways in which all artists work and the things in their lives become the stories that they tell. Mm, Yeah, very well said. You explore the idea of failure, and this is a theme that I'm always thinking about. And Sadie contemplates it after one of their later games isn't well received. What is it about this theme that resonates with you? (laughs) I failed a lot. (laughs) 
you know, that's the thing. Um, no, you know, it's funny. Like when I told my, my agent about the book, I said, hey, it's about love, art, video games, and time and failure. And mm-hmm. my agent was kind of like, I like the love, art, video games, and time part. But I think in a way for anybody who's in the arts, failure is an inevitable part of the process. And at first when it happened to me, you know, I'm an overachiever. I went to Harvard. But at first when I failed professionally, it felt terrible. You know, I was like, I felt, as Sadie describes, like covered with a fine coating of ash. You think you'll never get past it. You think everybody knows. You think the guy at the like grocery store is looking at you like that girl's novel did not sell well. And in that same year, I had another novel because I wrote a book for children, a book for adults that year. And the adult novel failed and the children's book did really well. And I had another novel that succeeded and that provided its own set of garbage. And so it's funny. I just realized that there was a lot to be learned from success and from failure. And in fact, sometimes failure is much much more interesting. What I have found is that the place of redemption isn't in sort of the external reaction to a thing. It's in the work itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it reminds me of a phrase that pops up early in your book, the famous Samuel Beckett quote, fail again, fail better. You've said that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow reflects your belief that a great love story can also be a great friendship story. How, how does your belief, this belief connect with the relationship between Sam and Sadie? You know, it's funny. I think that's a line that I said to make it simple for people Mm, to understand mm -hmm. what the book is. But it really is. It's a friendship story, but it's also a work story. And so to me, it's a story about colleagues as much as friendship. Their friendship is interesting, and I think that's more relatable, I think, to many people. But where their truly great love story is, is in the work that they make. And I think some people, and Sam and Sadie are these people— they don't end up with all of the things that I think we conventionally consider to be uh, happy endings and stories. So I'm sort of thinking about the house and the children and the, mm-hmm. the walk down the aisle. Like, they don't have those things, and so we don't think their relationship is romantic. And yet there's a great sense of romance between them. Their romance is in the work, and the children they make is the work. And it's funny, like, in terms of their friendship, sometimes they are not good friends to each other. You know, I think they're sort of bad at being friends, even though their intimacy and nobody will ever know you as well as those two people know each other. And that's something they grapple with. But but I think this story is about really childhood friends, that kind of like hothouse atmosphere of the intimacy you have and that you can only have when you're age 13 and have like hundreds of hours to spend together. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance that these beautiful video games that you helped Sam and Sadie create could become a reality? I think there's some chance of it, but video game development is slow. <laughs> novel writing is fast. And so I had no burden to actually worry about whether these would actually be hits, be fun, be technically possible. And especially because a lot of the video games that I describe, I tied them to particular technologies that would make them make sense for that time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if like we'll ever see them. Obviously, my publisher Knopf made Emily Blaster, which can be played on my website, which is Sadie's game that she makes in a college class. It's the easiest game in the book that involves shooting the poetry Emily Dickinson. So that's the one game. But I would mm-hmm. love to yeah, see Yeah, I that. played that. Yeah, <laughs> that was so much fun playing that. I really had fun. And I, right, and it I needs more levels. <laughs> it needs more levels, and we need the other games as well. Temple Hill Entertainment and Paramount Pictures have bought the rights to your novel, and you're currently working on the screenplay adaptation. What can you tell us about it? 
It's difficult. <laughs> you know, because it's a long book. It's like 500 pages. And it's not so much I'm willing to, uh, you know, go in and like, mess around and like tear things apart. But the greatest difficulty is how much fealty and affection um, my producers have for every element and moment of the book. You know, people talk about Hollywood people not reading, but not Temple Hill. Temple Hill, those people have read uh, this book so many times. And so anytime I kind of make like a change that like, you know, is different, it's disgust. Let's put it that way. But I think it, it was not an easy nut to crack the screenplay. I think we almost have gotten some, to something pretty good. And there's still part of me that worries like that you'll end up like missing so many things from the book in a movie, you know, but I think I'm hoping that we get to a place that really captures the experience of this core relationship of these two people that are better at work than they are at life. Mm-hmm. Gabrielle Zevin, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'm looking forward to the film and I hope that sometime soon we will be able to play Ishigo, A Child of the Sea and the sequel, <laughs> Ishigo 2, Go, Ishigo, Go. <laughs> thank you so much. Gabrielle Zevin is the author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Find out more about Gabrielle and her book at wpr.org slash beta. There were a couple crucial mistakes. The first was that neither agency ever bothered trying to learn specifically what the Branch Davidians believe. Coming up, Jeff Gwynn joins us to talk about his compelling book, Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Who wants to live forever? Who wants to live in paradise? Revelation 2.10, be thou faithful unto death, and I shall give thee a crown of life. You ready to die for Christ? I think so. Are you ready to kill for him? Another weak Christian! All of you weak! Weak, and it is killing me to know the price you will pay if you do not follow me. Philippians 1, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Will you follow me? Yes. Will you follow me? Yes. That's Tim Daly as David Koresh from the TV movie In the Line of Duty, Ambush in Waco. It's a fictional retelling of Koresh and the Branch Davidian standoff in Waco, Texas. The event made national news in 1993. Now, author Jeff Gwynn has set out to tell the non-fictional version of the events in his book, Waco, David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and a legacy of rage. Jeff has used his experience as a former investigative journalist to write what is probably the definitive account of this tragedy. His book features never-before-seen documents, photographs, and interviews. Jeff's meticulous research changes the perception of what really happened in Waco, Texas. We started our conversation by talking about how David Koresh became the leader of the Branch Davidians. By all accounts, including surviving Branch Davidians, it was a huge surprise. Uh, He came to Mount Carmel as a fairly inarticulate 21-year-old, but soon paired up with Lois Roden, who was at the time the leader of the Branch Davidians. 
Lois, who was in her early 60s, taught that the end was coming, that everyone had to prepare, that only her followers really interpreted the Bible correctly. They had to try to send the message. But she took David Koresh first as her protege and then as her lover. And gradually, he assumed leadership of the Branch Davidians from her. So it was a progression, but it was a shocking progression to most of the other Branch Davidians who didn't see much potential in Koresh until Lois Roden presented him as someone who could be a great teacher for them. Hmm. In 1986, Koresh announced that God needed him to take an additional wife or many wives. How, how did his followers react? Koresh always would mention things like new light. And he would say that what he had prophesied previously now had been replaced because God had given him additional information. He told his followers that based on his readings, his interpretation of the King James Bible, which, by the way, were always assumed to be the only correct interpretation, God meant for him to have more than one wife. They were stunned, and most particularly stunned was Koresh's 16-year-old wife, Rachel, who adamantly opposed this until she said that God came to her in a dream and said David was right. At first, everyone thought he would take just one more wife, but then Koresh announced an additional new light, that he needed to take wives, many of them, because now he interpreted from the book of Revelation that the lamb would spread his seed, have children, and that there would be 24 elders who would help the lamb rule the new kingdom of God after the end times. Those 24 would have to be his children. Therefore, he had to impregnate a lot of women. Hmm. One of many discoveries you made while researching your book is the discovery that David Koresh plagiarized his end times prophecies. Can you tell us about that? This was absolutely stunning to me. It was, uh, it was an absolute revelation. It turns out that David Koresh was not the original Koresh claiming to be the lamb, the prophet, the one who was going to read the seven seals and bring the end times. That honor belonged to a man from New York named Cyrus Teed, T-E-E-D, who was a physician in upstate New York and who gained many, many followers, thousands of them, by claiming he'd been raised up to heaven where he'd been informed he was the spirit reincarnation of King Cyrus from the Old Testament. And Cyrus in Hebrew is pronounced Koresh. So Cyrus T. took the name Koresh, moved his followers to a compound just outside Fort Myers, Florida in the late 1890s and proclaimed in his newsletter sent out to the world, and there are still plenty of copies, that he was the lamb of revelation. He was going to open the seven seals. He was going to do all the things that Quite a few years later, David Koresh claimed he was going to do. The original Koresh died in 1908 with his followers expecting him to return to life and bring about all his prophecies. That didn't happen. But they still believed enough to put together a book of his prophecies 
called Koreshanity, a religion for the new age, self-published. There were very few copies. But in the 1970s and 80s, when Vernon Wayne Howell arrives at Mount Carmel, a copy of this rare book is found in the Waco Public Library right there in town. And I actually found that copy where things had been underlined and everything else. But the main thing is everything he said was almost word for word from a previous Koresh. And when I go on my book tours, I'm even bringing that copy of Koresh Anity with me so people can see for themselves. Interesting. And we should point out um, to our listeners that Vernon Wayne Howell, of course, is uh, David Koresh's given name. Right. Uh, Vernon Wayne Howell said that when he was visiting Israel, he was carried up to heaven where it was revealed to him that he was the reincarnation of the old King Cyrus, exactly what Cyrus Teed had said, that he had to take the name Koresh. And then he added the name David because Christ, when he returns in Revelation, is supposed to occupy the throne of David. Mm-hmm. When did the FBI become involved in the investigation of Koresh and the Branch Davidians? The FBI got started in its investigations of the Branch Davidians, even a little ahead of the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, firearms. There were rumors that the Branch Davidians were beating children and Child Protective Services and Waco got involved. And there were also rumors turned out to be true, that Koresh was having sex with girls as young as 12. The ATF received uh, a query from a Michigan congressman's office. One of his constituents had a daughter who was at Mount Carmel. They were asked to investigate. They went in and they couldn't find anything. Uh, Koresh met with them, told them everything was fine. The children there seemed to be fine. But then ATF, about the same time, heard rumors that they confirmed the Branch Davidians were illegally converting semi-automatic weapons to automatic. And by the number of uh, accoutrements they were ordering to do this, it seemed that they were probably building up a huge collection of illegal arms. Uh, A former Branch Davidian who'd left because of Koresh's edict that everybody else's wives had to become his explained to ATF that Koresh not only prophesied the end of the current world, but that he was going, he and his followers would bring it about probably with their weapons. So that's when ATF took over investigations from the FBI. Mm. The Waco siege started on February 28th, 1993, and you were able to talk to more than a dozen former AFT agents who, who were involved. What did you learn from them? Nobody had ever really gotten into what ATF did that day and why they did it. The agents who participated in the first raid, there were 76 of them. Four would die, another 20 would be severely wounded that day. The agents were not told anything about what the Branch Davidians believed, that Koresh was prophesizing Mount Carmel would be attacked by the agent of Babylon, which of course would match at least to the Branch Davidians' minds, what the ATF was going to do. They were simply told there was a religious zealot and his sheep-like followers living in this big hovel 
that they had a lot of illegal guns that they were probably going to use on innocent citizens if there wasn't an intervention. And so they staged a raid with absolutely no knowledge that what they were doing would convince Koresh's followers that everything Koresh prophesied was true. The agents were also promised that the raid would only go forward if they had the element of surprise. They believed, based on what they'd been told by Branch Davidian defectors, that all the guns at Mount Carmel were locked away and could only be handed out with Koresh's permission. If they could get the drop on the Branch Davidians, no one would be armed. As it turned out, Koresh had already given guns to all his followers. They had them in their rooms in this huge building with 360-degree views of the land around them, and ATF walked into a fire trap. Hmm. What mistakes did AFT and FBI officials make during the siege? There were a couple crucial mistakes. The first was that neither agency ever bothered trying to learn specifically what the Branch Davidians believed, that they not only were ready to die to the last man, woman, and child if they thought they were defending themselves against the agents of Babylon, but that they wanted to die. The whole idea was they had to die to become translated by God to return with David Koresh as the lamb leading the forces of the Lord to wipe out all of Babylon. So they not only were ready for an attack, they longed for one. They were praying for it. And when the initial ATF raid on February 28th happened, they were happy, pleased. They'd been right. The lamb was proven correct, and so they were ready to fight to the death, and they started. ATF was driven off after the first night. The FBI came in to take over. They settled in for a siege, but they never understood, never cared to understand what the Branch Davidians believed, what they were doing. And at a certain point, they lost their patience, decided Koresh just wanted detention. He was never coming out. And they would insert CS gas to drive the Branch Davidians out. That, of course, ended in a conflagration and mass death on April 19th, 51 days after the first ATF raid. Mm-hmm. In the aftermath of the Waco tragedy, some people blamed Koresh and the Branch Davidians, while others blamed the FBI. Who do you believe is more at fault? There are no heroes in this story. You have three entities, ATF, FBI, and the Branch Davidians. None of them chose or even really tried to understand what the others believed, what the others wanted. There was never any clear communication for that. And because of that, it's happened for 30 years since that people have simply taken one side or the other, seen plots, seen satanic forces at work or or government conspiracies. And again, for that reason, Waco, Mount Carmel, has really been the launch pad for a lot of violence and anti-government or anti-religion acts since, starting with uh, the Oklahoma City bombing two years after the Waco fire. Timothy McVeigh said clearly he did that to get revenge for the innocent people who died at Mount Carmel. 
most of the current leaders in things we would consider to be militant, militia, or else uh, otherwise conspiracy-minded, from Alex Jones to the founders of Oath Keepers, they all cut their teeth on Waco and the protests there. And their references to it go all the way up to January 6, 2021. Waco has become an excuse for not only paranoia about the American government, but threats and occasionally violent actions towards the American government. Mm-hmm. Has discovering all of this new information changed the way you think about Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and the Waco tragedy? Coming away from this, I really have two reactions. First, again, I don't believe there were any heroes or any obvious villains. You had groups that absolutely didn't understand each other coming together in a situation where violence was inevitable. But it's also true, and I always try to make this point, and I will as I discuss the book with people who see Waco as part of a government conspiracy to go out and kill innocent people. Of the three groups involved, ATF, FBI, and Branch Davidians, only the Branch Davidian agenda absolutely required people to die. The Branch Davidians, David Koresh, had to have that. ATF and FBI both certainly would have preferred clean, violence, injury, death-free operations, which is what they tried to do, though it didn't turn out that way. So if you understand what the Branch Davidians believed and what they did, right away, that checkmates any real idea that it was a government plot against them. It wasn't. It was government ignorance but Mm. not government plot. Mm. Very well said. Jeff Gwynn, thank you very much for joining us and thank you for writing Waco. It's a very powerful and important book. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to discuss it. You're a great host. Jeff Gwynn is the author of Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Chad Mum, Gabriel Zevin, and Jeff Gwynn. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta or on Twitter at WPR Beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. He almost has to have like a lot of pressure and then somehow he just like kicks it into gear. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. I would consider that there's a few others more expert than I am, but I'm pretty high up there. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. He has a chance to consider himself among those very top guys because he's proven that he can compete.